0: Well, good morning, Encounter, and welcome. I am Ryan Hanson, and I'm part of the preaching team here at Encounter. And I just want to say, over the last couple months, with this whole stay at home, stay safe, quarantine, social distancing, I am tired. I started out super optimistic. I saw all the divides in my Facebook wall closing. I saw the stories that people were posting going from hateful political banter toward we can get through this together. I saw John Krasinski come out with some good news and I faithfully watched that every week, just about crying through the whole thing. I saw the divisions in the country start to come together and I was so optimistic until about a month ago when all those divisions started to spring back up as all that hateful banter came back when we watched people start picking and prodding at the different leaders and how they handled this uh, virus. And then a couple weeks ago, we started seeing the injustice in the country start to spring back. We saw Ahmaud Arbery get hunted down and murdered for going for a jog. We saw Amy Cooper call the cops on somebody who was taking pictures of birds for asking her to leash her dog. And most recently, we saw George Floyd who was murdered while handcuffed, laying on the ground. And I'm just tired of waiting for things to get better in this country. I'm tired of hoping and waiting, not knowing what to do myself. And that's what I want to talk about today. What do we do when we're tired of waiting? Now, this online format gives us the opportunity to discuss in a chat and to interact a little bit more than we would on a normal Sunday morning. And I would encourage you, and I'd like to hear your stories. How has the last couple months treated you? What are you tired of? Or are you tired of nothing? What are you waiting for and want to have happen? please post it in the comments below, start a conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But today, like I said, we want to talk about what do we do when we're tired of waiting. The last couple weeks, Dirk has done a great job of walking us through three different ways that we can view waiting through God's eyes. We learned through Habakkuk that sometimes God forces us to wait. We learn through Judas that impatience and greed can rob God of the opportunity to teach us through that waiting. And we learned through David that if we faithfully wait on God's perfect timing, that he will use that to prepare us for future battles. Now, I think that when we talk about waiting and when we talk about what we do and we're tired of waiting, there's certain lenses that we can view that from. You see, now that I've been a substitute co-homeschool parent for a while. I've read tons and tons of books with my daughter. And one of her favorites is Piggy and Elephant. Boom. We've read this book probably a thousand times. It's a good thing we got the hardcover. It would have been worn out. And basically the lens, because every children's book has a moral lesson, the lens that Piggy and Gerald look at waiting on is that Piggy gives Elephant or Gerald a surprise. I got a surprise to you. And for 57 pages, Elephant waits, does nothing, is miserable, quits waiting, starts waiting again. Finally, at the end of the book, the sun goes down, the stars come out and Piggy's like, that's the surprise, the stars. And elephant, all he has to say is, waiting is not easy, but it's worth it. And is that how we're supposed to view waiting? That we're just supposed to do nothing, sucking up the discomfort of not knowing when the waiting's gonna end? I hope not. My daughter also loves Dana the tiger, which for us older people is a spinoff of Mr. Rogers. And every time Daniel Tiger has a problem, his mom teaches a song to get through it, right? So when he has to wait for something, she teaches him this song, so bear with me. She says, when you wait, you can not play, sing, or imagine anything. Now, is that what we're supposed to do? Is that the lens we're supposed to be waiting? That we're just supposed to keep ourselves occupied while ignoring the actual thing that we're hoping for until it miraculously just happens in its own time and not bothering anybody in the process? I hope not. Now, I know what you're going to say. Hey, children's stories and children's lessons are very simplistic. It's not something that we take to ourselves with adulthood. But I got to be honest, my lens that I viewed waiting is no better. You see, at some point in my life, I picked up this quote. If not you, who? And if not now, when? And that was credited to Hillel the Elder. How fancy does that sound? He was a rabbi a little bit before Jesus that started the house of Hillel, one of the two main rabbinic schools, even at the time of Jesus. He was the grandson of Gamaliel, the rabbi of Paul. The Paul wrote half of the New Testament. So I always thought that this was like my quote, heavily sourced. I could use it whenever I wanted because of who said it. But is that how we're supposed to view waiting? That we're just supposed to view waiting as biding our time till we see the opportunity go where we want. And when we get it, we just jump on it. Again, I hope not. Today, I want to look through the lens that God gives us to view waiting, the lens that God uses to view waiting. And I want to do it through the story of Abraham and Sarah. Now, just for some context, Abraham and Sarah are 75 years old at the start of their story, and they have no kids. And that's important as we flip to Genesis 12. So if you flip with Genesis to Genesis 12 with me, let's join Abraham and Sarah because their story starts with a promise from God. So Genesis 12, verses one through three says this. The Lord said to Abram, his name was Abram at the time. God changed it in Genesis 17 to Abraham, but I'll just go with Abraham and Sarah for consistency. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth, will be blessed through you. Now, Abram had a massive benefit that I don't think most of us have, is he heard a promise directly from God. And when God says he will make him to a great nation, that's kind of the promise of kids, which Abraham was desperately hoping for at 75. Now, my story doesn't start nearly as dramatically as that. And I'd like, as we talk through the story of Abraham and Sarah, I'd like to kind of interject some of my story because I think as God taught me about waiting Hopefully we can all learn together on how we can wait uh, when we get tired. So my story starts less dramatically. At 18, 19 years old in 1998, God gave me the opportunity to coach hockey. So he gave me a middle school hockey team to coach. um, And I did that for 15 years. At the same time, he gave me the opportunity to volunteer at the local church in uh, a middle school ministry. Right. So I was a middle school youth pastor. Right. Just doing the small group stuff, having the conversations, doing that kind of stuff. And over those years, God showed me the full extent of environments that kids grow up in. See, some of them have great parents and great lives, and they have every opportunity. Some of them have no parents and have no opportunities. And some of them are in the middle. And God slowly softened my heart and slowly broke my heart for these kids. And I didn't hear audibly from God, I never have. But what God showed me and what through a prompting of the Holy Spirit, God clearly showed me that someday he wanted me to be a foster parent. And he wanted me to show the unconditional love that he has for us to these kids who so desperately need it. Now, I was 18, 19. I was single. I wasn't even dating anybody. I wasn't married. I had no opportunity to live that out. So I knew I'd have to wait. But I didn't know how long. And if you look at Abraham's story, he didn't know how long either. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, what good is a promise if you don't have a time frame? How do you wait well if you don't know how long you have to wait for? Because just like we learned with Judas when Dirk was teaching that, doubts creep in. Impatience happens. What are your thoughts? Comment in the stream below. What do you do when you want to wait well, but you don't have a time frame? See, how do we wait Well, like David, how do we we wait when we want to wait well, like David? But when we get patient and and greedy, like Judas. See, well, that Abraham had the same problems, and at some point he got impatient too. And we pick his story up in Genesis 15, verses two and three. And this is what Abraham did. It said, "But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord." what can you give me since I have remained childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be the heir. See, he kind of completely not only got tired of waiting, he gave up. He said, God, you haven't given me a child. I have all this stuff that you've blessed me with. I don't know what to do with it. And since I have no child to give it to, I'm going to have to adopt this adult servant and give it to him. Now Abraham did something super smart. In Genesis 14, Abraham talked directly to God and God responded like this. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood. He will be your heir. See, Abraham got impatient and he came up with a plan of his own, but he went to God and God shot him down. Now a little bit later in the next chapter, Sarah, she gets tired of waiting too. we pick her story up in Genesis 16, verse one, it says this. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband. He slept with her and she conceived. Now, I don't know what you think about Sarah's plan, but I think in reading it, that it is absolutely horrible. Hey, I haven't given you a kid. Why don't you try with my servant? Like that just seems like the worst plan ever. But in context and in the history, that is exactly the logical thing that would, she would have thought about. You see, the verse says she waited 10 years. From the time of the promise till then was 10 years. And in marriage contracts in the ancient world, men had three options if a wife didn't give them an heir. First option was after 10 years, they could divorce the wife and get a new one. Second option was they could pick a second wife and just have two. And the third option was that they could have a kid through a surrogate through one of their servants or slaves. And Sarah, probably being self-interested and not wanting to be a second wife or wanting to get divorced, picked the option of let's have an heir through a slave or a servant. Now at this point, I want to pause because I want to show the difference between Abraham and Sarah. See, Abraham went to God and God shot him down and he didn't go through this plan. Sarah went to Abraham, neither of them went to God, and they went through the plan. And I just want to use this as a moment of warning. Who do you go to for guidance when the right answer isn't clear? Who are you giving authority over your choices that only God should have? If you're going to people for advice, that's fine, but who do you give authority over your actions? Sarah gave it to Abraham. Abraham gave it to God. Who do you give it to? Now, Abraham and Sarah messed up, right? They didn't wait for God's timing. They got tired of waiting and they enacted their own plan. And embarrassingly, I did the exact same thing. See, I got married at age 29. So about 10 years after uh, my promise from, from the Holy Spirit. And two years into marriage, I was going to a church with my wife and they were doing a series on justice and they wove into it the thread of justice for all different kinds of people. And one part was for kids. And they said, we need kids to have justice. A lot of them are in horrible environments and you can help by becoming a foster parent. And I looked through my lens straight at the wisdom of Hillel. I thought, if not me, who? And if not now, when? And this is my opportunity to seize that promise that God had given me. So not having talked to my wife about any of my thoughts for the last 10 years, I sprung it on in the car at home like every smart husband does, right? Yeah? No? All right. That's what I did. She was caught aback and she wisely said, you know, we don't even have a kid of our own. Why would we jump right into parenting with a higher needs kid that we're not equipped to deal with? And that's probably smart. So me and my wife prayed about it and we did not get the direct no that Abraham got, but we did not get a direct yes either. So we do what Sarah did. We started shopping it around. We asked our friends. We asked our family. We asked pastors. We asked all kinds of people. And everybody said, no, 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 no. You guys are just married. You don't have any experience with parenting. This is a horrible idea. But I saw my opportunity and I decided that I could make it happen based on sheer force of will. So even with everybody's opinion telling me, no, I jumped at it and I went for it. And I decided that I would make it happen. So Abraham, Sarah, and I all made some pretty bad choices. And like I tell my six-year-old daughter, every time you make bad choices, you get big consequences. And that's exactly what happened. And we pick up Abraham and Sarah's story in Genesis 16, 11 and 12. And it says this, The angel of the Lord said to her, You are now pregnant. This is uh, Hagar, the servant. And you will give birth to a son. His name will be Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everybody and everybody's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. I don't know about you, but that is not what I want people to say about my kid. He will fight everybody. He will be a wild donkey and he will have hostility forever. Like, whoo, thank you. No, thank you, right? They traded peace of God for hostility. And at this point, I think if Abraham and Sarah's story was a movie, we would assume that Hollywood would fade it to black and the credits would start rolling. They had their opportunity. They screwed up. It's all over. But that is not how our God works. Our God is a God of second chances. Our God is a God that faithfully fulfills his promises. And our God is a redemptive God that takes your worst mistake, your biggest failure, your deepest, and darkest sin, and he can use it and turn it for good. And that's exactly what he did with Abraham and Sarah. See, in Genesis 17, 19, it says this, God said, yes, your wife Sarah will bear you a son. He, you will call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Abraham and Sarah messed up, but God redeemed their mistake and reaffirmed the covenant that he had to give them a son and to build a mighty nation through them. See, in my story, it pretty much matches Abraham and Sarah's. Me and my wife did plow through. We got licensed, we got approved, and we got a foster kid. And I, doing everything the way that I do, decided that it would be easier not to have to deal with biological parents. So there's like a refugee wing of foster care where you don't have parent visits. So, you know, like every good story starts, you start with doing what's easiest, right? That's how, that's how things turn out well, right? No. So we got a refugee foster kid from Honduras, 14 years old. He spoke no English and we spoke no Spanish. <laughs> what could go wrong, right? Problem was he had no interest in learning English We were not smart enough to learn Spanish fast enough to actually communicate. And I don't know if you've ever tried Google Translate, but Google Translate does not work very well with an angry, screaming teenager yelling at it. So for two months, we did our absolute best to serve this kid, to reflect that unconditional love of God to him that we wanted to do. But the only thing that came out was social worker who did speak Spanish would come over Talk to him for a while. They screamed at each other till they were right in the face. We didn't know what they were saying. Right? We got the cliff notes at the end, which, you know. And after two months, they decided that it was in everybody's best interest for him to move to a Spanish-speaking house. And our social worker decided that it was best for him to give up social work completely based on the stress that he endured with our case. But, again, being me, seeing my opportunity, having my quote, if now when, I told my wife, well, we would learned something there. All we learned was that we don't speak Spanish and Spanish was the problem, not anything else. We need an English speaking kid and we'll be fine. So we got an eight-year-old English speaking kid and he was amazing. The problem there was we didn't know what, like everybody couldn't agree on what was best for him. He had the social workers who said, he's been in the system for a long time and he needs to be adopted. You need to adopt not only him, but his brother, who's with a different foster family. And you need to adopt now. Two weeks after getting him, they're like, you need to start adopting him. Fill out the paperwork, start adopting him because he's been in the system too long. The judge, because of the history with him and his brother said, no, he should never live with his brother, let alone ever live with a sibling. He needs to be an only child. So adopting him after being with him for two weeks seemed reckless. At the same time, right when he moved to my house, we found out my wife was pregnant. Sometimes, right, lessons from God come in bad timing or our bad timing, maybe not his. And so then we're like, now, even if we just tried to adopt him, we got this kid coming and we don't know. We got the judge telling us they shouldn't. We traded peace for hostility even when we tried to do what was right. And for a year, everybody tried to do what was right with this kid. And after a year, social workers came. And they said, we convinced the Brothers Foster family to adopt them both. He's moving out. Now, this was a kid that had been with us for a year. This is a kid that hugged and kissed us goodnight every night. This is a kid that called me dad. This is a kid that would take chalk and draw hearts in the driveway and write my initials in red because it was my favorite color. My wife's initials in blue because it was her favorite color. And write his initials in purple because he said, I'm your kid. This is my family now. And overnight it went from, we're willing to adopt him once it makes sense. We had the paperwork filled out to he's gone. And they also said the other foster family said that we should have no contact with him ever again because they thought it would interrupt his attaching to them. So it's been six years. We haven't seen or heard of him since. And it's, it broke me. I tried to do what was right. I acted outside of God's timing because I just got tired of waiting. And I traded so much peace that God promises for hostility and pain. Now this is where I want to turn it to you. Whatever you're waiting for, if you saw an opportunity to take it like Abraham, Sarah, and I did, would you jump on it? How would you determine if it's God's timing or if it's yours? Comment below. I'd love to collectively learn from each other's stories. But what God taught me through all this is that whereas Abraham and Sarah got it wrong, we have a great example in their great-grandson of how we can get it right. See, if we flip forward to Joseph, Joseph was their great-grandson. Joseph had a dream and a promise of his own. Joseph's dream was that one day all of his 11 brothers would bow down to him. Now he stupidly told his brothers his dream and as a self-defense kind of thing or jealousy or whatever, they decided their best option was to sell him into slavery. So Joseph got a promise and he got sold into slavery. He not only got sold into slavery, somebody lied about him while he was a slave and he got put in prison. And while he was in prison, he interpreted some dreams for people and said, hey, when you get out, please remember me, help me get out of here. And they forgot about him. And whereas Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years, if you go from the promise to Isaac, it was 10. If you go from Isaac or Ishmael to Isaac, it was another 15. They waited 25 years and they were 100 before God's promise came true. Joseph had to wait 23 years. I think there's a lesson in that, in the time frame that God works on. But Joseph, after 23 years, was asked to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he did. And through Joseph, God saved Israel, he saved Egypt from a horrible famine. But if we jump ahead to Genesis 39.2 in the NLT, so it might not match the wording of your Bible, it says this. To describe how Joseph behaved during those 23 years. It says, the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything as he served. That's what God taught me through all this. As we're waiting, as we get tired, we're called to serve. And God showed me this this example. Bear with me. God showed me that waiting is a lot like taking a good picture. This is my camera. Clearly, I went overboard when I bought my camera. I decided that the better the camera, the better the picture. And I wanted great pictures. What I found out after buying it was that now I just have more options to screw it up. And that if you follow three simple rules, even with a cell phone, you can take a better picture than you can with this camera. But, If you want a good picture, there's only three things you need to pay attention to. You need to pay attention to the scene. What do you want in your picture? Now bear with me. You also need to pay attention to the depth of field. How much of the picture do you want in focus? And this is where God really spoke to me is you need to pay attention to the subject. What is the one thing when people look at the picture do you want them to focus on? And God showed me that through all of my waiting, I was making myself the subject, just like this picture. I was putting the focus on myself and letting everything else in my world get out of focus. I was focused on my waiting and my pain and I ignored everyone else in my effort to make what I wanted to happen, happen. And what God showed me through Joseph, we're not called to focus on ourselves like the elephant in my daughter's story or like the quote from Hillel we are called to take the focus off of ourselves. We are called to put the focus on everyone else, to increase our depth of field and to look around and find people that we can serve while waiting, like this picture. You probably didn't even notice that in the background of the first picture was my daughter, who this was staged, she's fine, but she fell off her scooter and she was crying holding her knee. Now, what kind of a parent would I be if I ignored my daughter who's crying because I was waiting for something to happen. I would be a horrible parent. But in reality, I think this is what a lot of us do. We focus so much on our pain. We focus so much on what we want to happen. We ignore the pain of other people. See, the lesson that God taught me is we need to serve through the waiting. And he gives us a perfect example of somebody who serves through the waiting. Generations after Joseph served through his waiting, Jesus came to earth. And this is what it describes, Matthew 20, 28. Just as the son of man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus took the focus off himself. He was God, he deserved it. He took the focus off himself and he put it on all of us through service. And he calls us to do the same. John 13, 12 through 15. When he had finished, he being Jesus, finished washing their feet. Now this was the lowliest of tasks that only the worst of servants would do. He put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, being the disciples. You call me teacher and Lord and rightfully so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I served you, you serve each other. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now my wife's story and mine is not complete. We are still waiting to figure out what God wants to do with the vision that he showed me. But he's given us unbelievable opportunities to learn like David, and to serve like Joseph in the meantime. Opportunities that I would not have been able to do if I had both kids. He called me to seminary where I got to learn more about God and learn more about the person he called me to be. He called my wife and I to serve by being youth pastors at a church. He called my wife and I to serve by helping plant a church. And he taught us both a ton of stuff about parenting through trying to raise my six-year-old daughter. And through our volunteering at World Vision, my daughter is now exposed to the situation that most kids face around the world. No education, dirty water, have to walk four miles a day to get dirty water that could make them sick. And my daughter started to ask questions. Why am I only child? Why don't I have a sibling? Why do I have it better than they do? We have an extra bedroom. Why don't we let one of them come live with us so they can have clean water? And we don't know what to do with this. We don't know if this is God's prompting and saying this is the right time. But we're praying and we're turning to God and we're giving him the authority over our choices so that we don't make the same mistakes. See, waiting on God's promise is tough. And it's really hard to know when it's actually God and when it's just you forcing things to happen. You can do it through prayer, through reading scripture. You can do it through talking to smart people. And by just waiting, because when God's promise is gonna happen, He's gonna make it happen one way or the other. Now, I wanna conclude by telling a story because the last couple of weeks have been extremely hard on me. I've been extremely disappointed in the way that all the news agencies have covered the events of the last couple of weeks. Instead of seeing news agencies cover all the protests as people in their pain trying to get other people, the government, the legislators, the police departments to hear the truth of their situation and take action. They've decided to cover the minority of riots that have happened. They've showed scenes of cars burning and buildings burning instead of people peacefully marching, waiting for justice to happen in a country that so desperately needs it. On the other side, I'm tired of seeing the news cover over and over again not the good police that are making good decisions. Like my mother-in-law lives in Flint and the police chief marched with the people as they protested the injustice in the city. But they cover the times when the police go too far. I tried to find a positive story that came out of the last couple of weeks and I searched and it was really, really hard. And that was really, really depressing. But I found one story that I think summarizes our whole talk on waiting pretty well. See, in Kansas City, the Black Lives Matters group, instead of planning a march, instead of planning a protest, the leadership met with the police department first and they said, what can we do that's most effective that can help you guys understand our reality and help us understand your reality so that maybe positive change can actually happen? And as they're all waiting for justice and waiting for change to happen, the Black Lives Matter group decided that the best option would be to serve. So they rented a park and they decided to serve the police lunch. They had a big cookout. They invited the police and they invited the neighborhood and around picnic tables, officers, African-Americans, Hispanics, Latinos, and Caucasians all sat around the table, had open and honest conversations about their reality, what they go through, their fears, their hopes, their dreams. And as the afternoon progressed and conversations happened, it turned into a public forum where the police and the local government got together and all the public got together and they actively talked about what changes can actually be made and started planning to make those changes. You see, instead of focusing on their pain, they focus on serving somebody else, the very people that their pain is created by, and work together to make a lasting change to start taking steps in the right direction. And I want to put the challenge back on you. What can you do this week to focus less on your pain, to broaden your depth of view and to see the pain in others, to feel the pain that others people feel and to serve them, even if it hurts you, like Joseph? What kind of a world would we be creating if we all focus less on ourselves and more on helping each other. That's the kind of world I want to live in. That's the kind of world I want us to create together starting now. That's the kind of world I think God calls us to create by serving while we wait. Please join me in prayer. Dear God, we're all doing a lot of waiting. We've been waiting in our house to leave. We've been waiting to be able to watch sports. We've been waiting to do all kinds of things. And whereas that's annoying, it's painful to wait for justice. It's painful to wait for a promise that we know you've given us that just hasn't happened yet. We know that your timing is perfect and you're using our waiting to teach us and to prepare us like David, but it's hard and we do not wait well. Our nature is not to wait. We pray that you help us to see waiting through your lens, through the lens that you taught us through Joseph and through Jesus we pray that you help us to broaden our depth of field, to take the focus off of ourselves and to put it on those around us and serve through our waiting. But we also pray that you bring about your promises quickly. You're the God of peace, you're the God of justice, and we pray that as our minority friends continue to not receive the justice that they deserve, we pray that you bring about the changes quickly. You help heal the divide of our country. That you close the wounds of the past. That you help us move forward, serving each other. We need you in this just like Abraham and Sarah and I could not force our promises to come through. We can't force this to happen either. Please fill us all with the Holy Spirit. Guide our thoughts and actions. Help us to reflect your unconditional love to the world when they need it the most. We thank you for who you are, for your love and for your promises. And it's in your son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.